0: It's one of the biggest differences I've seen over the last 15 plus years between top performers and average performers. And that is top performers are deathly allergic to spending too much time with a deal that has a low probability of closing.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Robert Kaler. He's a leading voice in sales enablement and sales excellence through his work at HP, LinkedIn, Topo, and most recently, the real estate giant Compass. And in our conversation today, we're talking about a wide range of subjects around the topic of sales effectiveness, starting with how you measure it. We then dive into the important differences between revenue enablement and sales enablement. We get into why Robert believes sales enablement needs to focus more emphasis on the importance of understanding their business, their customers, and their buying process versus the traditional focus of learning on knowing the products in your process. And we dig into why conventional sales enablement unintentionally discourages the development of sales acumen and sellers. And we get into the difficulty behind providing more consistent levels of effective sales coaching. And why the problem is perhaps related to the fact that coaching is seen by leaders as a tool or a program, when in fact, it's actually a relationship. So we get into all of this and much, much more. But before I get to Robert, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So let's jump into it. Robert, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Andy. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh,
0: I love your creativity and your fresh thinking.
1: Oh, Robert, well, thank you. Um, Yeah, no, it's always fun to chat with you and and, I consider you one of the sort of Fellow thinkers in this this business of which there need to be more, quite honestly, because um, otherwise, how we going to how are we going to evolve and improve? Exactly. Um,
0: so, a- oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, as as you point out, um, it's not about necessarily finding the next great idea. It's about executing. Because The longer I've been in this business like you have, the more I find that we still have a lot of the same root cause issues happening mm-hmm. in sales, sales enablement and other areas.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, it's I get asked all the time by people, so, you know, what? You've had this podcast for... Yeah, a long time now. You know, what have you learned? What's, what's really changed? And I tell people, I think what's more significant is how much it stays the same. I mean, yes, the externalities changed. We have you know, a lot more uh, data available to us, a lot more technologies available to help uh, you know, us take a certain actions, but still people selling to people. Exactly. Well, so before we get started in, in our conversation, tell us a bit about you and what, what you do. Andy, my background is in
0: sales, sales enablement, customer success, and what I call revenue enablement. And right now, I am about to uh, launch a new consulting company, and I work in sales consulting, sales mm-hmm. enablement consulting, and with leadership programs.
1: Yeah. So we first met when you were back at Topo, right? Yes, I think that was. Yeah. So which was a sales advisory focused on primarily startups, I think. Right. And in, in the Bay Area and then got acquired by Gartner.
0: Yeah, we started out with uh, high tech growth startups and then expanded to other um, industries. And yes, I was director sales consulting there. And we met at one of the Topo sales summits and actually did a we're on the same panel together.
1: Well, I remember. I remember listening to a panel at, at a Topo event. It always sticks in my mind. Is is, is a bunch of yeah VP sales, CROs. At that point, it's mostly VPs. The CRO titles hadn't become so popular yet. And um, I just remember one guy. talking about yeah you know, sales management, sales leadership. I remember one of the panelists saying, you know. We just don't do one-on-one coaching anymore, <laughs> and he says because, quite frankly, you know, it just doesn't work. Um, first of all, there is an audible gasp from the, from people in the audience, and I am sitting there thinking to myself, "Dude, you are the problem. It's not, it's not coaching. It's you." But what always sort of struck me is that, yeah, you know, here is and this was a you know fairly well-known SaaS company, uh, and I was thinking, wow. My reaction is wow.
0: And when I was working um, at my last company to drive revenue and built the whole sales enable machine challenge wasn't whether we want to do one on one coaching, it was how do we scale it? We had so much success with the one to one. It's like, how do we grow this in a repeatable manner that still maintains the connection with the seller that we're
1: trying to coach? Well, okay. So that's a good question. So how do you, I mean, first um, of all, it's great that you had that problem and we'll get back and talk about that in a second, but since you had a successful program, how do you scale it? Um, so here's what we
0: learned. I haven't found the, the magic silver bullet, Um one, we realized that we needed to get some skin in the game from the frontline sales managers. We mm-hmm. said so we needed to augment them and help them and offer a program. So I hired a sales coach and built a sales coaching pillar within the sales enablement team. And we had the sales so to, manager- to coach the coaches to start off by coaching the sellers and then the next phase was coaching the coaches. Got it. Um, we were having less success. The first approach was to go directly to the frontline sales managers, show them all the research about how much coaching helps. And they all nodded their heads and then went off their own ways. And we didn't see that much of an increase in one-to-one coaching or, uh, a, dip day, a lot of times, as you know, coaching is confused with running the weekly uh, pipeline or forecast. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, deal coaching, right?
0: Yes, exactly. Um, so, first thing we did is we had the hired a separate person at a sales effectiveness to work with the sellers. Then we met with all the front lines. Well,
1: let me let me just interject. Yeah. So, you hired a person just as a coach? Yes. Right. I love that. So a coach who wasn't in the line of management.
0: Coach that wasn't in the line of management gave them 30, 45 days where I said to them, your main mission right now is to set it up so that by day 45, when you have your coming out party, you have really established your brand and credibility with sales management, both frontline sales managers, regional directors, CSO and CRO. Interesting. Okay. All right. Cool. Cool. And then number two, we had – I got buy-in from the CRO to ask the frontline sales managers to submit like three-quarter of a page application for which sellers they wanted to participate in the program. Mm -hmm. The goal was not to bury them in paperwork, Andy. The goal was for them to have some skin in the game. Right. And to eliminate those people that we got the first couple of times – where it was, I don't want to have to put them on plan. I'll so, use sales enablement as a quarter last result and I, last resort and see if they can spare me that
1: pain. Right. Yeah. Let me fob the, the problem off on somebody else. Yes. And then secondly,
0: what we did is we tied it in with the quarterly business reviews. We oriented quarterly business reviews to a brief section on development And we just focused on two specific skills and how we were going to measure them for the quarter. Mm -hmm. So the coaching wasn't, I'm going to help Andy with discovery, which can be a huge thing, or I'm going to help Andy with proposals. It's going to be, I'm going to work with Andy on asking better questions. Right. I'm going to work with Andy on recapping after they've, gone through the discovery while still on the call with the customer. Mm -hmm. Very specific skills. And we found that we moved the needle a lot more that way. And then third, we asked the sales managers had to agree to two to three check-in meetings with the sales coach a quarter. 15 minutes Mm -hmm. at the beginning to agree on the plan, midway checkpoint, and then a final summary and conclusion. Got it. And what we found was that sellers that participated in the coaching program showed a 46% increase in quota achievement quarter over quarter, and probably even more significant to me, an 11% increase in win rate
1: quarter over quarter. Interesting. But it wasn't that high of a touch of a coaching program, at least based on what you're saying. Right? Uh, the
0: touches were with the sales coach prepping for the next meeting, listening in on a call, and right. then having, you know, setting up the 30-minute coaching call right. or debrief off of the shadow.
1: Yeah. So the people that were achieving the higher, let's say, higher win rates, I mean, how many, let's say, during a quarter, let's say, I mean, how many, because you mentioned the word, the number three before, but how many – on average, coaching sessions. Do you think they went through during a quarter? We started
0: with more than four, mm-hmm. and we we whittled it down to try to get to three. Because what we found is, once you get to six, seven, eight, it becomes the law of diminishing marginal utility. Right, right. Um, particularly if we're just focused on two specific skills. Right. You know, versus boiling the ocean.
1: Boiling the ocean, which, which I, again, yeah, I think is, is, for something that's more sort of execution oriented, I, that's fascinating. I mean, I think that, I think it's a great data point for people to think about. If you have, during a quarter, let's say one a month, but it's really effective, right? As opposed to yeah, boiling the ocean, we're going to talk about a lot of different things, but yeah, we're very focused on these two things.
0: Yeah, I love that. And okay. then where we ended up going is, is I was transitioning into a different team is the sales leadership essentially came back to us and said, more of that, please. Right. Um, because we were able to communicate the results in a very quantifiable manner. Right. Uh, and they got to, with the three regional directors, we, they each had a sales coach from sales enablement working with them so that they could get in tune with exactly, you know, the different uh, modus operandi and philosophy of the different regional directors.
1: Got it. I liked it. So you had worked, um, and I've seen more people sort of in this area, sort of sales excellence or sales effectiveness. So you're seeing companies have this, you know, sales effectiveness teams. So what's, what's the role of those teams? Or, yeah, I was just talking to somebody earlier this week who has you know, worked within a sales center of excellence for their employer. So what typically are the, the role of those teams? So I'll, I'll give you the perspective
0: of how I set it up mm-hmm. um, and, and my point of view on what's the best way to think about it. Or one way to think about it, right? And when I came in, the the CRO hired me and said, "All right, I, I want you to build an operation that's going to support our growth. We're going to triple or quadruple, and we did. We went from over eight hundred million to three point two billion in three and a half years."
2: Right? And he wow. said,
0: "I want you to build it, and you decide what to name it and what you want to call yourself." Mm-hmm. And so I chose sales effectiveness. And some people might say, all right, well, that's the same thing as sales enablement. The, the small difference, which can become a big difference, if you think of, you know, like a rocket trajectory and you're one millimeter off, it becomes right. thousands of miles. Yeah, you, you go to Venus instead of Mars. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not about education or enablement. And I like to say, I don't care about education or enablement. I do. I do, but just for dramatic purposes, what I care about is results and helping sellers be more effective in helping buyers. Right. And that's what it's about at the end of the day. That has an implication for, all right, then we have to get sharper on what we measure, how we measure it, what we communicate, that means right. we really need to understand where they need to be more effective and we're focused on performance rather than just knowledge.
1: Yeah. No, I like that. Well, and so it, it reminds me of sort of this, this uh, story I was reading not too long ago about um, sort of a different take on on performance is, but I think along the same lines, it was interviewing a coach of a Soccer team in Norway and listeners indulge me because I give a lot of soccer stories. But it was just this this uh, small club, professional club in Norway that that punches far above its weight. You know, it's one of the top teams perennially in, in Norway and it's in a small a small town north of the Arctic Circle, right? And uh, but then they always compete in the, the main competition in Europe, the you know, the big European wide competition like the Champions League or the Europa League. And this was an interview with the coach about, yeah, you know, well how do you how do you you know how do you achieve at this level, sort year after year? And he said, Well the secret is we focus on performance, not results. And I think that sort of aligns with what you're just saying is is you know, we, we focus on the effectiveness of what we do, knowing the results will come. And I think that's that is is really a critical thing for sellers is to be less concerned about the outcome and more about, OK, what am I doing in this moment that's helping move the ball forward? Yes, because if you do the right things
0: um, in practice and study, um, you're going to get the result. It's like when I was coaching marathon runners Hmm. Everybody has different styles of didn't running. know you did that. Uh, yes, I did that. I mentored well over 100 marathon runners. Wow. Uh, people that were trying to run their first-time marathon for Leukemia Society team and training.
1: Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I and see those it, people out running all the time, like uh, uh once I remember – my wife and I were out for a run on the, the beach near Santa Monica in in LA and, and there were whole groups of team and training for the leukemia fundraising for, I think the LA marathon. Yeah. It was really, really cool.
0: Yeah. It was a great program. And, you know, a lot of newcomers come and say, well, how am I going to do this if I'm not running 26.2 miles in practice? Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a little bit of trust us. we done this several times before in specifically if you do these things, the short runs, a little bit of track work, longer runs on the weekends and so forth, you will get the result.
1: yeah well also um, yeah you know, it's great to be in a group too. <laughs> I think that I always like that idea because didn't they run with a, a pacer for you know hey, I'm the pacer for, you know, this, you know, the three hour marathon or the whatever. I presumably broke it down by per mile uh, pace. But
0: yeah, yeah. I, I would love to seize on that point for a minute, Andy, even sure. though it might be a little bit of a detour. No, um, Go ahead. because you and I had talked about this a few months ago. Um, and one of the things I found in building and running um sales enablement, sales effectiveness organizations, and driving sales results is the power of accountability groups. Right, And it made me think of marathon running. Um, because whether it's a book club or small groups in a church or marathoning, that accountability of having a running partner is so powerful. And I didn't worry about the folks that didn't show up for a lot of the midweek runs mm-hmm. if, they, if I knew they had somebody else they were running with. Right. people that didn't show up and didn't have an accountability partner. So what, how does that apply to what, you know, we're passionate about the the field of sales, making people more effective. I found in two of the big topics that people brought up to me lately, um, frontline sales, le- sales management and mm-hmm. leadership programs that when we leverage peer accountability groups at my last company, It was incredibly effective.
1: At the individual seller level as well as the management level?
0: Yes. And even more important and more effective in getting buy-in from frontline sales managers and senior sales leaders. Because frontline sales managers, you know, sellers don't want to be trained, period. Frontline sales managers really don't want to be trained. (laughs) And what they do want. Well, well thankfully, because they're not for the most part. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, what they do want is they want to feel like they're getting an advanced MBA and development from their company. Mm-hmm. And they want to hear their peers. Mm-hmm. They don't want to go up and hear me talking for two hours. They want to know what their peers are doing because a lot of companies, they're so busy firefighting. They don't know what some of the folks that are being really successful do. So we would pair them up in teams between sessions. And we would also, for our uh, leadership programs, for instance, come back in the second session wouldn't be more learning and training as we gave them one thing to practice that was really simple, that fit into the normal routine of their work. So mm-hmm. extra work. And we'd essentially facilitate a peer to peer sharing and learning session. And they found heavy value in that. And specifically what I found with our last round leadership program is we had active participation of the entire sales leadership, senior sales leaders and frontline sales managers of 86 percent is Hmm. where we finished. Whereas the first time we ran it without that Mm -hmm. participation rate fell down to 54% by the end of the program.
1: Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. So I'm sort of thinking, sort of, you know, take it outside the scope of a single company is, yeah, a lot of people join, you know, we're seeing a lot of growth of sales communities these days and so on. Um and in some cases, yeah, there are sort of, sort of these, you know, peer partnerships that are formed. I think to me that that would be hugely attractive, even if it wasn't somebody within my my company or even my specific industry. Maybe even more more impactful if they weren't. Yeah. And
0: even if it's a fifteen minute conversation and you and I share something, you know, one fifteen minute conversation in three weeks, there's still value. It's you know, progress, not perfection.
1: Yes. Yeah. No, I, I agree 100% on that. Um, yeah. Very, very interesting. So now you also you brought up a term before, which, you know, you and I have touched on in the past in our conversations is saying focusing more, especially with, with early stage companies on revenue enablement versus sales enablement. So tell us what you see the differences.
0: Okay. So First, my my definition of revenue enablement is we're enabling all pre- and post-sales customer-facing teams. Okay. And sales enablement is sales, you know, SDRs, account executives, account managers, the people doing, uh, you know, more renewal, upsell and cross-sell, whatever they may be called at different companies. Right. Um. What does, you know, why revenue enablement? One, that aligns better to the buyer needs and yep. what the buyer needs. Yep. Because um, if you look at what buyers say, one, they don't want to have to keep repeating information to different groups.
1: And My rule of thumb about that? Yeah. So I, I teach this to, to sellers. I said, rule of thumb is your odds of winning a piece of business, and this is just purely on the, the first order, but it applies over time, your odds of winning the business uh, <laughs> exist in inverse proportions the number of times you ask the customer to tell you their story. I love that. And <laughs> because you just so often you, know, you saw this with sales teams, and I experienced <laughs> it when I was early in my career, is you know, I have a Customer, big opportunity I'm working on, and I'd bring in my immediate sales manager to, you know, meet the customer. And the first thing they do is ask them to, so tell us about yourself, you know, go through your needs again. It's like and he's communicating to the to the buyer, yeah, we don't trust the seller, right? Because I need to hear this myself. And then you bring in the next level boss. Same thing again, right? So tell me about your needs. It's like they start over again. Yeah, it in a
0: complex enterprise sale, they probably told their story to the SDR, the account executive, the account executive's manager, the pre sales engineer, and the you know, post sales customer success manager.
1: And the director, or VP, if they get brought in, and possibly even the CEO. And it's like, first of all, hey, what do you think Salesforce is for? Uh, are you not reading what we've put in there? Um, but yeah, yeah, I didn't to get sidetracked on yeah. that. But. So buyers want
0: um, the different groups that they work with in a company to have some, at least of the same general understanding of the industry, of the business, and their specific company, account, and business. Mm-hmm. Um, what revenue enablement also does in my mind, Andy, is it um, – and this is really important for you know startup companies – if, if you can think of revenue enablement first instead of sales enablement, you're immediately eliminating some of the redundancy and skills and tools training. You're eliminating, um, creating different technology and terminology silos.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and I'll give you a more specific example, you know, sure. related to some of the things I work on. Right now I'm doing a, Buyer persona framework, what I call sales centric buyer personas, Um, buyer messaging, storytelling, objection handling. Is there a difference in the framework of that between what you want a customer success manager to know and an account executive to know? In my mind, no. No. No, the, yeah. the only difference is maybe some of the nuance of the content that we put into the framework right. and how deeply you apply it. So, when I was at my last company, I was, had, you know, built up the whole sales effectiveness team. Then they asked me to move over and start up the whole customer success effectiveness team, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. had over nine, you know, impacted 900 internal employees. And we were recreating the wheel. They brought me up and said, We want you to rinse and repeat. And I they had different terminology, different technology systems, different views on buyer needs over on the customer success or operational side. Right. Now it's harder with a company that's more mature that has already built those different organizations. I'm not saying it's going to be simple to merge them all into one revenue enablement team, but maybe a small win is if I do a leadership program, I don't just apply it to sales leaders. I also apply it to the customer success leaders, the pre-sales engineer leaders, so on and so forth. Right. The last point I'll make if to get a little esoteric for about 60 seconds is something I'm fascinated by called Conway's law. And it wow. says an organization's output is directly related to how it communicates internally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what typically happens is you have customer success has their own language, their own terminology, as does pre-sales, as does the SDR team, as does the AE team. When the customer just wants one experience, Right. And the most notable application of Conway's law was this museum, the Australia Center for Moving Images. And they had all these different departments related to different exhibits and one for technology and one for customer experience. And what they said is, let's scrap that and try to think of it all together. Just one experience of walking through one museum. And they got everybody communicating as one group mm-hmm. and the museum revenue and visitation went up like 25%.
1: It seems so intuitively obvious, right? But yeah. Well, I mean, I liked what you said before about is, you know, that you're trying to align the view of the buyer or the view that sales has of the buyer and their needs and requirements with the view that success has of the buyer and their needs and requirements. Um,
0: and in think? terms of the economics of the business, if you can build that from the get go, mm-hmm. um, you're now going to lower your cost of sale, whether pre sale or post sale, because you're not going to need to invest in, you're not going to have two different technology systems to solve the same problem. You don't necessarily need as many layers of different types of management.
1: Right. Well, you also have a single source of truth that you're dealing
0: from, right? Exactly. You can get them all in the same content management system. For instance, right. Yeah, and that can be a huge challenge for companies.
1: Well, and this translates into, you know, you touched on it. Yeah, how do we onboard people, right? Because if that's really our focus, or one of our focuses, then... Yeah, the way we're typically onboarding and enabling new sellers doesn't really address that.
0: Now, and onboarding to me begins with the buyer, meaning the first module or first topic that I want to get across in onboarding is understanding the buyer. And there's a couple of different, you know, submodules of that and everybody needs to understand the buyer. I want the people and customer support to have an understanding of the buyer, mm-hmm. the customer success to the pre-sales to sales. And yet they all get different onboarding programs. And what a, what is onboarding? Um, what is it traditionally started with our products and solutions?
1: Right. Oh, 100 percent. Right. Yeah, and
0: then the, the founder or senior leader goes out in the field and is perplexed as to why we're selling product feature functions.
1: Well, and the fact is, that's not why people are making their decisions. So, I mean, the, in, in my mind, the data that I see is, is and I talk about is, is you know, buyers aren't driven by product feature functions in, primarily in making their decisions about what to buy. I mean, it's so. There's data we've been sharing recently that was gathered by a company called Trinity, Pers, Trinity Perspectives out of Australia done win loss analyses uh, and you know face to face interviews with yeah, well over a thousand enterprise buyers, B two B buyers, and decision makers, and you know they've sort of summarized it into. Uh, Hey, here are the nine, as a result of all these interviews and all this data gathering, you know, the nine primary reasons why you win, nine primary reasons why you lose. Not one of the nine why you win or nine reasons why you lose have to do with the product. <laughs> and this is coming from the buyers and the decision makers. It's the old adage of
0: people use logic to justify emotional decisions And to to put it in an even better context, um, I love the emphasis on your latest book, Andy, and you talk about human connection. Mm -hmm. And and I think that is a big part of it. I mean, you mentioned connection, curiosity, understanding and generosity, but big, bold highlight around the word connection, human connection.
1: Well, it starts there. Right, that's the foundation for everything that follows in terms of building credibility, and trust, and influence. And, and, yeah, one of the specifically one of the nine reasons, nine most commonly cited reasons why vendors lose deals, as reported, I said, thousand plus data points, was failure to make an, failure to make an emotional connection. Absolutely, right there, right. There, right one of the primary things, and for yeah, you know, there's all these doubters out there that you know, I've, I've had some of these people on the show. I think, and so I saw a LinkedIn post about this, just, yeah, just a couple weeks ago or three weeks ago at this point. Yeah, you know, some relatively you know well followed person on LinkedIn saying buyers don't want human connection, <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I mean, first of all. For this person, he was conflating a connection with a friendship, and as long as people are are being so uh, blind in how they conceptualize what the connection means and the value of the connection, yeah, it's going to be problematic. So this, we're talking about just humans connect. We have there's this level of connection. And if you're connected, yes, it's it's a form of a relationship. That's true, but it's the the conduit for creating a level of trust that enables everything that needs to follow it. You know, if you're, if you're uh, doing inadequate discovery and you find that's one of the sort of weak points in your process and you're doing some, you know, again, win-loss analyses and it's because you didn't build the trust to a sufficient level to be able to ask the questions and get the answers that you needed.
0: Yes. And you know, part of that trust is just being comfortable um, talking to them human to human. Part of that trust is understanding their business, understanding mm-hmm. what they do. And an area that doesn't get much attention is understanding the economics of their business when they may not.
1: Well, or to, to at least be able to ask questions to help them understand. Yes. Right? I mean, that – That is one of the reasons why buyers, not so I want to talk to sellers, but need to talk to sellers is they need somebody that can ask them questions. They're not thinking to ask themselves. Yeah. And that's that's why the self-aware buyer does talk to sellers.
0: Otherwise they do it all on their own. Yeah. You said it to me and it stuck with me is, um, buyers don't want to buy product. They're, They're They want ideas. Yeah. And I think that's why. What they only spend seventeen percent of the evaluation time, according to Gartner, talking to sellers.
1: <laughs> I think in that, whatever can we talk, that can we then, talk about that figure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Because what's missing from that figure is a couple of things. One is, you know, okay, buyers only said seventy. I'm willing to bet that the number is actually much lower, and. That's okay, <laughs> because and a is I don't think it's ever been any different i mean there's there's an implication where they say only seventeen percent there's always sort of the sky is falling aspect to it it's like yeah so <laughs> that was my first reaction to it I was like so I mean that's a lot higher than I would have expected mm-hmm. I mean think about it I mean i I and a good chunk of my career selling to customers you know, outside the United States, uh, doing most of it, yeah. You know, sort of unfortunately dating myself, but yeah. You know, pre-email, doing a lot of on the phone. Certainly, you know, Pre-video conferencing, and we were selling, you know, seven eight figure deals. I'd see the customer. I don't know. If I was lucky, I'd see them four times before they signed an order. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I would imagine they were. There was maybe three vendors they were talking to. If they spent seventeen percent, that would have been a lot. That and I love that comment
0: because I had, you know, let's say it's three or five percent. Or I said it puts even more emphasis on you have very limited time. Yes, um, to share some ideas to ask some good questions. Um, and to connect with them
1: yes, I mean that's it's which means you have to bring your a game every time you have the opportunity to interact with the buyer and you know, this idea I talk about in the book about yeah you, know, you just you have to be intentional, right? Every time you interact with a buyer that has to be it has to be justified that's that's the term i 've been using recently it has to be justified. How are you justifying this interaction with the buyer? is it you know whether it's an email, a voicemail, in-person meeting, of you know, face-to-face meeting online or actual in-person meeting, uh, how are you justifying it? Yeah. Meaning the buyer's going to invest some time and attention in you. What are they getting out of it that's going to help them make progress toward making a decision? Yeah. Andy, I want st- to. love the
0: word you used intentional. Um, so in my last company, I talked a lot about that with sellers in general. And also when I was doing one-on-one or small group coaching Mm -hmm. Um, and the simple exercise of asking them, okay, share with me the purpose agenda and outcome of this upcoming meeting. Yes. I could tell most of the time, the way they shared the outcome, how effective the meeting was going to be. And as part of that, how intentional they were. There are yes. a lot of fuzzy objectives and there wasn't, you know, the more intentional you are, the more you have an idea of what you want to achieve. And I also want to mention one other thing in case there's people like me listening out there. Because so when I started my sales career, I was so focused on being intentional and getting to the point um, that I didn't make any time for idle chit chat. You know, I was, right. I'm a businessman. I'm a serious guy. <laughs> when I... I went to the next level in sales. I just became more comfortable with myself as a human being, mm-hmm. had more life experiences. Like, mm-hmm. Hey, I'm, I'm going to have some fun. Right. Cause life is short and I'm going to talk to these people. Um, just like it's, I'm meeting an, I'm meeting a new person. Mm-hmm. Now I had some intention behind that. It wasn't, you know, sure. what's your favorite hobby. And you know, if I caught you on Saturday night, what would you be eating? but it was just letting the conversation go for a few minutes and talking to them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agreed as you probably expect, a thousand percent yeah. on that. And I, and I talk about in my book, Sell Without Selling Out, there you are know, two questions that managers should be able to uh, ask about every opportunity in a pipeline and the two questions that a seller should be able to answer about every opportunity in their pipeline, which is in this next interaction you're going to have with the buyer, what are they expecting from us that's going to help them make progress toward making a decision? And as a result of receiving that value from us, what steps are they going to commit to take? It's that simple. If you can't answer those questions, don't waste the buyer's time. Right? Because they've got a limited pool of time and attention to invest in this, this whole project of making a decision. Don't waste it. And similarly, don't waste your own time and attention as a seller because you also have a very limited uh, inventory of hours that you can spend and invest. Absolutely. And so in the absence of an answer to those questions, yeah, yeah I coach sellers as well do nothing, don't send that check in email. You know, don't send something that has no value for them, uh because you think you know it's time to touch bases or them it's time to make sure to establish you know, another connection point or something no, you're so, much more intentional than that, Andy, I
0: can't call you just to check in <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, not when I'm buying really? something, but uh, otherwise, yeah, you can you can call me anytime
0: but, I, I appreciate your emphasis on the idea of decision-making because it, it and i think it's in spirit with what you've always said we're not here you know you say in your book it's about influence not persuasion we're not trying mm. to manipulate the customer right and i've adopted and prefer to think about it the way you phrase it of we're here to help them make a decision a yeah. good you know a good decision
1: which They're hiring us to do that. Yes. I mean, that's really the thing, the perspective, you know, I want sellers to think about it is, and sales leaders is, the buyer has a job that needs to be done, which is to make a decision about making a change in some dimension. The fact they're talking to you means that they need your help. They're, they're hiring you to help them make that decision. Yes, which
0: is, as an aside, a whole separate topic for another podcast, but why I think there needs to be more emphasis in sales and sales enablement around um, studying decision making, because yes. in my mind, that's what we're doing.
1: Yes. Oh, Absolutely. And,
0: absolutely. Uh, there's a lot out there in the fields of neuropsychology and behavioral economics about
1: decision making that we can leverage. Absolutely. I mean, I would I would start onboarding programs you talked about before. I would start with uh, something along the lines of why they buy. You know, what triggers customers' decision making, and and to your point, there's a lot that's been written about that. Uh, I write about it. In this book as well, the final chapter of my book, um, I put forth what what I believe happens, and based on research on by Nobel Prize winning economist and psychologists psychologist, excuse me. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of information out there, so we should be providing this context to sellers just to start with. As yeah, how do people make decisions? You know, what triggers decisions? What what drive? What are the motivations that drive people to make decisions? And then Get the feedback. The second part should be okay. Now, this is the feedback from our actual buyers, our customers, right? What is the thing that that they need from us as sellers to help them get that job done? Yes. And this, is, this is this is something that yeah, I've been on my soapbox more about recently. But but we know from Challenger, we know from Forrester, other analyst firms have talked about this. Is yeah you know, that. I think a challenger. They talk about what fifty-three percent of the buying decisions based on the buyer's experience with the individual seller. I think that this has actually become more pronounced, not less, as as more products, certainly in the software world, become uh, and not just software world, but almost in every markets become more similar in the minds of the buyer. And looking at this 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 research, so I cited earlier from Trinity Perspectives that that. When people are making decisions about buying, it's it's not about the product. It's not about the features. It doesn't even come up in their top nine reasons why they're buying. It's about the experience of buying. The experience working with the seller. And so don't we want to know what the buyer needs from the seller in order to help them make a decision? Yes. Which is why, you know,
0: we we call it sales process that should really align and start with what's the stage of the buyer decision-making process and what do they need? And I wanted to comment on two other things, circle back to what you said when you're talking about the two questions that they should be able to answer.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You talked about actions on behalf of the buyer and, and that lends itself to, I'm going to use a wonkish term so you may cringe exit criteria. And that I think good processes for helping sellers now um, involve exit criteria, which are based on actions on both the part of the buyer and the seller. Because I see so many opportunities where we delude ourselves about where it is and how winnable it is, because we've done a certain activity. We conducted the demo and they agreed to another meeting. We've done discovery and they talked for a long time, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but they didn't do a tangible, verifiable action where we just look at ourselves and not the buyer.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, 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 prefer a different term, which I prefer milestones. Yeah. And the reason being is, yeah, I'm still a little skittish because you know, a lot of people use the word exit criteria and they talk about, yeah, okay, we've got this linear stage-based selling process. You know, we, we interact, we do preliminary discovery, we okay. do a demo, we do detailed discovery, we do qualification. Each of those stages has exit criteria, which Gives the idea that somehow it's done, and you know, just take discovery as a perfect example. Discovery is never done. Yet, you know, there's lots of people out there talking about. Well, here are the exit criteria for our discovery stage. It's like, no, that may be a milestone on the the road to making a decision. But if you're telling people it's the exit criteria for discovery stage, they're going to stop asking questions. They're going to they're going to turn off the curiosity when actually. That's when you really need to double down on your curiosity. Yes, and it's
0: not ABC, always be closing, it's always be discovering.
1: Yeah. So, well, I, I, so I like to say that you know, every interaction you have with a buyer sort of has four four goals, I, I call it. There's probably more, but you deepen your connection, you deepen your discovery, you deepen your understanding, and you deepen the value that you're providing to help them make a decision. That should be a goal of every interaction. Four goals of every interaction. So if you put a an end point on discovery, then people don't attempt to learn more. And yeah, I've learned things and most sellers do. Is You may learn things just when you think you're getting ready to close. That's, hey, make a difference.
0: And when I watch top performers, because I was thinking as you were uh, just commenting, Andy, when I watch top performers they're always asking questions throughout the process, nor is reconfirming their understanding with the assumption that they may have missed something or not understood something.
1: Yeah. Or as, as I wrote about in the book, is is yeah, when you've when you think you've confirmed exactly what you know the buyer has told you and you're confirming your understanding. You know, the question you want to ask at that point is great. Okay, thanks. Yeah, for confirming that. So what are we missing? What are we missing? Ask that a few times, right? Just when you think and the buyer thinks, maybe we've got this you know, all tied up in a you know pretty package with a bow. Uh yeah, but what are we missing? And this this then triggers deeper thought, right, on Airbase's part. Oh, well it's hmm, interesting. Yeah. Oh, well, maybe we didn't get you know Jennifer's perspective from this department, or maybe, you know, maybe we had this question. We didn't really, we didn't really nail that down. And if you surface that, hey, everybody else is just your competitors. They're marching forward. They think they've got it all done. No, you're finding out something more that gives you an advantage going forward. I like that.
0: And there's another question that I love that more experienced CROs and VPs of sales ask internally, which relates to the concept of opportunity cost that you raised. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is, why are we going to lose this deal? Mm-hmm. Because I find that's the best anecdote or uh, vaccination for
1: happy years. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Yeah. Framing is as, as why are we going to lose this deal? Yeah. No, I like that. I like that. Yeah, I had a,
0: a VP in San Mateo, California, I worked at Oracle for many years. And we were talking about an opportunity deal review framework. And he finally said, all right, stop. Said all these questions are just leading right down the primrose path. It's like, Robert, I've been doing this for a long time. And I only asked two questions. And here's one of them, because I am so tired of the line of sellers outside my door in the last two weeks, every quarter coming into my office and giving me 17 reasons why we're going to win the deal. (laughs) He said, so I flipped it on its head. Right, and generally, the first or second question I ask is, "Tell me why we're going to lose the deal."
1: Well, I like it. I like it. I like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it forces you to sort of come down off the the high of thinking you're going to win it, and be really realistic about okay, where do we stand on the buyer's estimation? Yeah, and this is this is something that that leads to another point, which again is. Coach on, but we need to we need to train on and board on because I think that's a great question for sellers to be asking themselves. Um, but paired with that is this reluctance on the part of sellers to ask. So, where do we stand? Right? Where do we stand relative to the competition at this point in time? Where are we in your estimation at this point in time? Basically, saying, "Hey, how are we doing?" I have found that to be
0: a great tip. And, and I, I shared this with you when uh, I, I sent you a note when I first looked mm-hmm. at your book. Um, I think that's just a great question for any relationship that you're in. Yes. You know, it depends on the relationship, of course. Um, but I have I have found that I am not a great mind reader despite my perception that I was ready to get a crystal ball and like make a lot of money doing fortune telling. Yeah. So, you know, the, let's check in, where do we stand? What do you think of what I just said? Um, How are we doing?
1: Yeah, so you finished the call. Yeah, you finished the call. So was this helpful? You know, did we meet the objectives that you had in mind for this call? I mean it's along the same lines. This is, is continually take the pulse of how you're doing. Why why leave it to be a mystery? Right? If you're thinking, well, geez, how am I forecasting the opportunities are gonna close? If you're not at this level of understanding of the buyer's perspective, of how you're doing, how are you making that how are you making that call?
0: Yeah, it's like a nurse walking out of the hospital room going, I hope Andy's blood pressure is good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, pretty much, right? Is are yeah. operating on a level of assumption. And it, it boils down to fear, right? As people don't want to ask because they don't want to know, right? Because they're thinking yes. at one level, man, it's probably not good, but I'm, I'm building momentum, right? And, and that's just, it's just the wrong, wrong approach for sellers to take is always ask. Find out where you stand in relation to things. What's, Amen. The worst, what's the worst they're going to say? Give you the truth? You're not doing well? Well, then you've got information that you can act on and try yeah. to change things. Or maybe make That's a decision okay. to say, yeah, this is not really a fit for us.
0: Yeah. Information is power. Yeah. Uh, I don't like, I do not like the word power. It's just, it's if I network. have the information I can make,
1: uh, I can have a, a more
0: resourced response.
1: Yeah. Well, I can make a decision. Right? Because again, as a seller, you have to make the the biggest decision you have to make is where you're going to allocate your time, how you're going to spend your time. You've got a limited amount of time. And your ideal state should be is how can I be as effective as possible with every uh, every minute I have with a buyer. And that was really sort of the the genesis or the the name of my first my first book, which I zero time selling, which actually came from a client who, um, you know, we're talking about this idea of continuous improvement in our ability to be effective in front of buyers. And I just sort of, you know, drew out this hypothetical drawing for him that, you know, theoretically, if we kept getting more and more effective, that we could move people through their buying process in zero time, right? I mean, theoretically, right? Just, you could get infinitely improved. Um, but yeah, that was sort of the he'd given it that term, but it's that's sort of the idea. So how do you get better unless you're asking? I mean, certainly your your win rate and your results will talk, but that's at one level. But to really understand you have to go back and ask. Yes.
0: And that also relates to the um, you know, one of the great pandemics I still see out there in the in the sales world and the leadership world for that matter is time management. Um, Yes. And we can say it and sellers may roll their eyes that, you know, time is the most valuable asset that you can control. And yet when I get into deals or quarterly business reviews with sellers um, and we get into this concept of is this the right place to invest this limited resource
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, they they don't apply that concept of time being the most valuable asset they control in in real life action
1: well and we see this in spades in in the low win rates in many companies right is and you have you and I have talked about this in the past, is, is you're spending time selling to someone that you have no realistic chance of winning, for whatever reason. Let's, we won't even dive into the reasons. And Part of the reason may be that you're not spending enough time with them to really understand the things that are most important to driving the decision, because you've got too many opportunities you're working on. But yeah, that you have to make a choice as a seller. And in my f- first book, I, I use this image of saying, look, you really need to think about yourself sort of as uh, the bouncer at the, the end of the velvet line getting into an exclusive club is you decide who gets into the club, that club being who you're going to sell to. Just because somebody raised their hand and said we might be interested, doesn't mean they get in the club. And you as a seller have to make a decision about, yeah, qualification, <laughs> do they fit the ICP, You know, just some initial screening. But then even as you go through into the deal, just because you started down the path doesn't mean you finished the path. Sometimes they're just not a fit. And you have to say, it. this is to yourself first. This is not a fit. And no matter how much I might wish it is, it's just not going to be. The odds of winning are extremely low. Their companies that are better suited for it. Just say thank you and say goodbye.
0: Yes, it's one of the biggest differences I've seen over the last 15 plus years between top performers and in average performers, and that is top performers are deathly allergic to spending too much time with a deal that has a low probability of closing
1: yes well and and that's an important distinction to make I, low probability of closing versus low probability of winning because yeah I mean the yeah. the worst of all possible outcomes to me on record with this is a no decision right yes I mean, that's, and that's. That. Often the biggest competitor we lose to, right, but I mean, I'd rather lose, which means at least I did my job. We got the customer point where they made a decision, right? We competed, we're not going to win every deal, but we competed, we competed well, uh, we could do a you know debrief after and make a decision about whether we should have competed on it. But if we competed well, we thought we were in a fair hearing, we thought we were in the running. Sure, we lost. But, boy, to go through the whole process and have the customer say, yeah, we're just going to stay where we are. I mean, it wasn't just a failure on your part, a failure in all the other sellers' parts that you're competing against as well. Everybody we, did a pretty bad job.
0: Yeah, we, we did something really interesting at uh, my last company, and that was we really focused sellers on something called the power position. Maybe Mm -hmm. the wrong branding, but if you'll excuse that for a minute, it was this notion that we are equals in a relationship. Yes. And the way you introduce um, and finish the call is all based on the idea of, hey, we're going to make, you know, this is about both of us making a mutually beneficial decision. Right. 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 Um, and that sounds simple, but we'd actually we required people to do it on a two minute um, meeting introduction video practice. Mm-hmm. And one of the four elements we were checking for was the power position. People need to practice it because they it's related to the mindset of I need you to buy from me, Andy, please. Right. Now I've got to hit my quota or whatever the thoughts are, or I've only been at this six weeks and you've been in the industry for 10 years. Um, you're so much more knowledgeable than I am. How am I going to sell to you? No, it's two people deciding, hey, we're on equal footing. You got to have that mentality and you need to introduce it to the customer that way.
1: I, I agree. I mean, for me, this goes back further in life. I mean, I was very fortunate. You know, my, my, uh, Parents used to you know, when we were kids. Parents loved to dress us up and, you know, have us come to their you know, parties they would throw and so on. And you always used to think, oh, they're they're showing us off, right? And that used to be annoying. But then, as as I got older, I began to understand uh, a bit older is, was like, oh, actually, what they were doing, whether it's intentional or not, this is sort of the net result of it was that that. What our parents are really proud of is that we as kids could hold conversations with adults, meaning with people where there's this incredible status mismatch between the two. Yeah. Yes. And and it became something that, you know, carried over into later life is this ability to hold a conversation with people where ostensibly there's a status mismatch, but to talk as equals. And and it's a very important, you know, mindset to have. I, I'm glad you brought it up, because uh yeah, I like to joke when people say, you know, what's the, the cause of bad selling? I got to say bad parenting. But yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> it's helping, you know, people from even young ages to have this, feel comfortable talking to people and holding conversations with people that, again, on the surface, are different levels. And for me, this was hugely valuable as I got into my career. It's not that I didn't want to sell. It's not that I you know, wasn't anxious to get business. But I could... Go in as, you know, young salesperson, looked really young. <laughs> yeah, you know, my first job, I looked like a teenager. And hold conversations with founders of companies and CEOs and have them give me time. And yeah, yeah, I got much better obviously as time went by, but at least initially I was I was curious and I could hold a conversation. I wasn't uh you know, outwardly just grasping for something, right? I was interested in the person. I knew how to have a conversation. I have shown interest in the other person to, to open the, the door to a conversation. So, yeah, I think it's a really valuable perspective to have.
0: Yes. I hope you're going to give the 800 number for your parenting manual at the <laughs> end of this call. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's yeah. ask my kids about that. But, yeah. Um, it reminds me of the um, course I took at, you know, at Stanford and Improv. And mm-hmm. there's a famous improv exercise where it's all about status mismatch right. and how that impacts things. And I think that's a lot. It happens a lot in sales. But they assign people a number from one to four. One is the biggest authority figure. And they go out bossing everybody around the four has to do whatever somebody asks them to. And you give all the players numbers, but they can't share what their number is. And right. the audience... Um, the rest of us in the class would have to guess who was a one, a two, a three, and, three a and a four. And then you do an exercise where you try to balance out the status better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I and I remember to, excuse me, I remember um, uh, a friend in the sales business, a uh, fellow author I'd met, um, Robert Turson. I don't know if you're Robert, um, but I'm not sure how active he is anymore, but he's a little bit older. But he said that was always. The secret to his success, and he had been very successful an entrepreneur and the businesses he had run, is he said, everybody was my equal, right? They weren't above me, they weren't below me, everybody was my equal. And it's such a great perspective, I think, for young sellers as well, is to understand is you're not asking people for a favor when you're selling to them, is you're there to provide a service. And they may choose not to avail themselves of that service, but you're there on an equal footing, And, um, yeah. All right, Robert. Great stuff. Unfortunately, we've got to cut things a little short, even though we've gone quite a long time. But uh, it was great. So thank you very much. And uh, if people want to connect with you and learn about your new business, what's the best way to do that?
0: Uh, Best way to do that is, A, you can go to my LinkedIn profile, Robert Kaler, K-O-E-H-L-E-R. Or you can email me about to put up the site and my business email. But for right now, it's Robert Kaler, K-O-E-H-L-E-R, one word, 066. So it's no dots. Robert Kaler, zero six six at gmail.com. Perfect. All right, Robert. Thank you. I look forward to doing it again. All right. Thank you so much, Andy. Always a pleasure speaking with
1: you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show And I want to thank our guest, Robert Kaler, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.